Well, good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we are delighted that you're here, and it's a privilege to get to worship with you this morning. My name is Randy, and I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church, and as Colin mentioned, um, we're in a series in the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations, it's a um, a book that we're studying uh, this first half of uh, summer, uh, which has already come, right? And... um, um, This morning, we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 2, and we're going to be dealing with the topic of God's wrath. Oh, goody, let's talk about God's wrath, right? I don't know any preacher who just wakes up in the morning going, oh, let's just talk about God's wrath. Uh, But when we study through particular books and chapters of the Bible, we just kind of take the subject as it comes to us, and that's where we are today uh, as we'll be reading Lamentations chapter 2 in just a minute. I wonder what you think about when you think about wrath. Wrath. Well, let me help us uh, with this story that has made the news all across the country just this past week. Well, on January the 18th, 2015, about 1 a.m., two Stanford graduate students were riding their bicycles through campus They saw a man and a woman near a dumpster. The woman was unconscious, partially clothed. The man fled. One of the students chased the man, held him down while the police came. The man was identified as Brock Turner. In March of this year, so over a year after uh, the uh, crime occurred, Turner was convicted of three counts of felony sexual assault. Uh, Prior to the sentencing by the judge, both the anonymous victim and the defendant's father wrote letters to the judge in consideration of the sentencing. And the two letters could not have been more different in terms of their perspectives. Could not have been more different. Um, The victim wrote a gut-wrenching letter read in open court. Uh, It's out on the web describing the horror of uh, the crimes uh, committed against her. Um, Just gut churning. And then the father of the defendant wrote a letter and um, said that his son was anxious and worried and is even having trouble eating his favorite food. Ribeye steak. No kidding. Uh, and then the father of the defendant said that a long sentence would be a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20 years of life. So, two very different perspectives. Um, the maximum prison sentence in California for this is 14 years. The prosecutors wanted six years. Turner received six months jail time, and most likely he'll be out in three months. He'll be on probation for three years and be a registered sex offender for life. Um, Court adjourned. There's been enormous pushback on the leniency of this sentence. Californians are signing petitions to begin the process of Recalling this judge, uh, someone on Twitter wrote, 
Let's be clear, had this been a black man, he'd have gotten the full sentence. I mean, it's a mess. And the level of pushback at this leniency, the level of pushback reveals and acknowledges a strong belief in what can be called judicial wrath. Judicial wrath. And judicial wrath says that when a crime occurs, you know, the punishment needs to fit the crime. It's pretty straightforward. And we see the principle of judicial wrath in other areas of life, even outside the legal realm, in our university community. Uh, when there is the academic crime of plagiarism, there is the judicial wrath of academia to fit the crime. And in many cases, it's expulsion from school. Sometimes it's expulsion from the course. At the very least, it's a zero on whatever that project was. Judicial wrath, punishment, fits the crime. It's in just different areas and realms of life. The courts, academia, even shows up in family life, right? In parenting, when our little darlings disobey, they're recipients of loving but firm parental wrath. Like when my 27-year-old police officer son was three years old, he flopped his big, fat, hairy toe over the line in an act of willful defiance. I mean, it was just blatant disobedience. Flopped that hairy toe over the line and gave me a look that said, what are you going to do about it? You know? And we reserve corporal punishment for such acts of family treason. <laughs> and so I gave him a swat. And he took issue with the level of judicial wrath that he'd received. I remember him looking back at me and saying with a smirk, that didn't hurt. <laughs> so I thanked him for his feedback, and I gave him some of my own. <laughs> so you see, when it comes to the topic of judicial wrath, we really are in favor of it. We really are. We, we really want evil to be punished. We really want wrongdoers held accountable. We really, really do. And our acknowledgement of that prepares us for today's scripture on the judicial wrath of God. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Lamentations chapter 2. You'll find that on page 686 of your church Bibles, uh, the Book of Lamentations is in the Old Testament. It follows uh, the book of Jeremiah. And Lamentations was written in the aftermath of um, the fall and one of the greatest failures in Israel's history. The destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, the exile of the Hebrew nation to Babylon, in the 6th century B.C. And Lamentations consists of five poems or laments. 
And if you recall, last week we said that biblically speaking, a lament is a threefold cry of protest, plea for mercy, and petition for help. It's a cry of protest. God, I don't like this. It's a plea for mercy. Uh, I don't like this, and I realize that I'm responsible for causing this, and a petition, oh, please help. Oh, please help. Uh, like chapter 1, chapter 2 in Lamentations is 22 verses. And like chapter 1, each verse in Lamentations chapter 2 corresponds to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's like an acrostic. So verse 1, uh, the first word of verse 1 uh, begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, or it would be the equivalent of our A. And then verse 2, and so on. So there's a structure. There's an organization to this lament. There is a discipline to this lament. And it covers all 22 verses, or rather 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, as if to say the lament is complete from A to Z. And like chapter 1, Lamentations chapter 2, has two voices. Two voices speak in chapter 2. The voice of the poet, the poet, who is anonymous. We really don't know who wrote Lamentations. It follows the book of Jeremiah, and um, uh, many scholars associate Lamentations with the prophet Jeremiah. So we hear this anonymous poet, and some think that's intentional because you see the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple has stripped this poet of his identity. And you know, I don't know who I am anymore because my homeland, my people, my city, my place of worship, it's all fallen to the ground. It's in a heap, it's in a rubble. That's the poet. The other voice is the voice of Lady Zion. Lady Zion, a personification of Jerusalem. Um, so this is a poem, and there's symbolism and, and lyrical uh, verses. But unlike the Stanford University incident, the pushback in Lamentations is not concerning how lenient the punishment is. Rather, it is the severity of the punishment. And as we read, we feel the pain of God's wrath upon Israel, it feels more severe than it should be. That's intentional. That's how severe this is for this nation because of what's happened. So let's read Lamentations. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Follow along with me as I read. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around 
He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden. Booth, that stands for the temple, the temple. He has laid in ruins his meeting place, again, the temple. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princess are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, what can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you? To you, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? 
Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women, my young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. This is God's, this is God's word. This is just heavy, right? And someone's thinking, I brought a visitor for the first time today. <laughs> I understand. It wouldn't be right to apologize for these verses. This is the word of the Lord. It would be right to figure it out and to explore. And that's what I'd like to do. That's what I'd like to do this morning as we consider this, this, this kind of sobering issue of God's wrath. And so I want to answer two questions for us. And the first question is, okay, what, what is God's wrath? Let's define it. How does the Bible define God's wrath? How do we see God's wrath unfold in these verses? Okay, what is it? That's question number one, all right? Then the second question, though, second question is a leadership question. It's a leadership question, and it's really, really important because I'm looking across our uh, worship center here. I've got a lot of leaders here. And here's the leadership question. How do we minister to how do we bring comfort to? How do we, yes, even advocate to those who have been wounded by God's wrath? How do we do that? How do we come alongside those who have been wounded by God's wrath? That's a very important question because I can guarantee you this. Someone's here today, maybe they were in first service, maybe they're here, coming to this church, and they have, uh, you know, like the, like the younger brother in the prodigal son, they've been to the far off country, and they've just ended up, they've ended up eating pig slop, and they've come to the conclusion, there's, there's got to be more to life than pig slop, and so they come. And they're here, having been wounded by God's severe mercy. Now, how are we going to treat that person? That's a leadership question. We'll get to that. But let's first talk about what the wrath of God is, okay? Well, here's what the wrath of God isn't. Um... It's not human wrath. God's wrath is not like human wrath. You see, you know, one of the reasons why we're kind of repulsed and we recoil at the idea of the wrath of God is because we really don't have another point of reference other than our own flawed human anger 
you know, which is uncontrolled and undisciplined and temperamental and unpredictable and often like, you know, we often go to the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz when we consider the wrath, right? You billowing bale of bovine fodder. You, 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 you clinking, clanking, clattering collection of caligatous junk. That, that's how we just often associate the wrath of God. And that's MGM. That's not the Bible. They're not anything alike. Truth be told, there's nothing unpredictable, nothing irrational, nothing mysterious about God's wrath. It's simple and it's straightforward and it's clear. And so consider this definition. God's wrath is his unrelenting resentment, his personal revulsion, and his deliberate resistance to evil. It's his personal, vigorous, and note these words, carefully measured opposition to evil deeds and evildoers. We'll see that later in our text. It is his displeasure with and the venting of that displeasure at evil and those who do evil. God's wrath. Unrelenting resentment, personal revulsion, deliberate resistance to evil and evildoers. The wrath of God. And paradoxically, God's wrath is rooted in God's love. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, have two sentences that are adjacent to one another. The first sentence, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And sentence number two, abhor or hate what is evil. Isn't that interesting? That love and hate would go together in the same verse, but they do. You see, God cannot be a God of love without hating evil. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does Damage to his image-bearing creatures. N.T. Wright, an outstanding New Testament scholar, says if God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at sexual assault, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, terrorize, and enslave one another, he is neither loving, nor good, nor wise. These heavy and heart-wrenching verses from Lamentations chapter 2 do not come from 20 minutes of activity by a 20-year-old nation. They stem from a long, long history that goes back to Genesis chapter 12 when God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and through you all nations will be blessed. And then this family of 70 in Abraham's family sought refuge in Egypt under Abraham's great-grandson Joseph. And 400 years later, this family mushroomed into a, 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 a nation and Moses brought that nation out of Egypt. And in Moses' last sermon, 
before he died, prior to Israel taking the land of promise, he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 28, I set before you two paths, two choices, two doors. Door number one, if you will faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, if you will take care to follow his commands, I will give you blessings. Blessings will overtake you. Your families will be full. Your farms will be full. Your barns will be full. The weather will always be good. You will be a creditor nation, not a debtor nation. You will be the head, not the tail. You shall only go up. That's the promise of blessing, door number one. And if you don't, door number two, curses. Curses will overtake you. And Deuteronomy 28 has 53 verses of curses. As if God's saying, I'm not kidding. And there's nothing complicated or mysterious about Deuteronomy 28. And it, the game wasn't let's make a deal. It's here's the deal. Here's the deal. Two choices, your call. What do you want to do? Door number one, blessing. I want that. Take that, God says. Door number two, curses. Let's not go there. Consistently, over centuries, Israel chose door number two. Consistently. For centuries, God's word and God's word through his prophets warned Israel, you know, let's, don't do that. Don't do that. And by the time we get to the 6th century, Jeremiah has repeatedly warned the southern kingdom of Judah, the people, the leaders, the pastors, the clergy, if you do not change your ways, if you don't leave the idol worship behind, if you don't leave social oppression if, if you do not leave the political folly of following Egypt against Babylon, you're going to pay. And when it happens, it's going to be worse than you could ever imagine. And we read, it's worse than they could ever imagine. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is what some scholars call reverse holy war. Where the Lord works against his people who have been for centuries unrepentant. So you see, God is the subject of every verse in verses 1 through 8. Do you see that? The Lord cast down, swallowed up, has broken down, brought down, cut down, burned, bent his bow, killed, laid in ruins, laid waste, scorned his altar, raised a clamor. It's like demo day on Fixer Upper, only there's no fixing up. We're witnessing in slow motion here the physical demolition of this beautiful city. And there's an unmistakable movement from heaven to earth. It's coming down, God says. Jerusalem is intentionally and methodically being unbuilt. And note verse 8. There's no ranting of rage that's going on. Instead, it's God's wrath is measured with laser-like precision. Verse 8 says, He stretched out the measuring line. Huh. It's interesting, isn't it? Carpenters typically get out the measuring tape in the construction phase. But here, God has 
taken out his measuring tape to destruct. He's, he's erasing Jerusalem from the map, including the temple and the government. And that's why verse 9 says the law is no more. The law is no more because the government's no more. And there's no more prophets because the visions are gone. This once beautiful city is in ruins. Why would God do this? Well, we know why. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses uh, uh, 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. God is offering soul rest. Who, who doesn't want that? They don't want that. But they said, we will not walk in it. God says, I, I set a watchman over you. You know, the prophets, the word, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Israel thought that she was exceptional. We're exceptional. We're, we're, we're exceptional because we're, because we're Israel and we have the temple. In fact, she said as such in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. God says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They just thought the temple was just kind of some sort of magic charm that would protect them. Sun Chen Ra uh, has written a really good commentary on lamentations and he said, place and events did not make Jerusalem special. Instead, it was Yahweh's presence that made Jerusalem special. Yahweh's destruction of worship life reveals that Yahweh's presence should not be taken for granted, but should be embraced with great humility. It is only by his grace that his presence is found any place on earth. But they just wouldn't. Choose door number. They chose door number two. That's what we're going to do. Willful defiance. So what do you expect from God when there's willful defiance? What, what do you expect? Will you just give him a six-month sentence out in three months? For good behavior, really? Verse 3 described what literally happened. This is a poem. There are lyrics. And as we see in verses 1 through 8, God is the subject, but... but Verse 3 describes historically what happened. It's this phrase. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. And once God withdrew, Babylon swooped in for the kill. God's right hand was keeping Israel safe from the pagan nations that surrounded her. And it had always been that way. You see, his wrath... God's wrath, when it's actually displayed, God's wrath is more his passive withdrawal than it is his active assault. He actively assaults by passively withdraws. You see, when the shepherd withdraws from the flock, the wolves go in for the kill. And why would a shepherd withdraw? Because the sheep just don't want to be led. They refuse the shepherding. From the shepherd. Meaning, God will ultimately give you what you want. 
C.S. Lewis concerning heaven and hell once said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those in heaven who say to God, thy will be done, and those in hell to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. See? So here's the question. What is it that's keeping me from wanting God's shepherding over my life? What am I trusting in right now that will turn on me were God to withdraw? On Friday nights at Celebrate Recovery, we often say it this way. Your best effort brought you here. Your best effort brought you here. Your best effort got you broken. So what are you trusting in right now that's going to turn on you? What is it that God needs to make war on in your life to get you to pay attention to him? What is it that I'm saying, you know, I'm not going to walk in it. I'm not going to pay attention. What is it that God needs to deconstruct so that I'll depend on him? Some of you know about a former professional soccer player, Landon Donovan, who for years was the standard bearer uh, of American soccer, uh, more than a decade in, uh, in our country. Um, when Donovan was growing up in California, he had a t-shirt that read, soccer is life, everything else is just details. Donovan once admitted, soccer is my identity. But in the last stage of his career, that identity started to crack. And in 2012, 2013, uh, he struggled with depression. His celebrity marriage disintegrated. He had to take a four-month break from soccer. And Donovan said, uh, they, fans, coaches, the media, they want us to live, breathe, eat, and die this sport. Every game they want you to go out and do everything you can to make the fans feel good, make the coach feel successful, make the owners feel successful. And after the 06 World Cup, I realized clearly that this was a business and that it was fickle. And I was foolish enough to think that these people who were showing me so much love genuinely loved me. But after the 06 World Cup, people said, well, now you've had a bad World Cup. We don't think you're that cool anymore. And he said that was a very eye-opening experience. But he said, at the time, it was by far the hardest thing that ever happened to me in my life. But the beauty of it is that it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it allowed me to wake up and see the world differently for the first time. And that's what God wants to do with his wrath. He wants to give us a set of glasses so that we can see. See clearly. See the world through his perspective. And that's why we can call his wrath a severe mercy. A severe mercy. That God loves you so much that your life is worth his evaluation. That God loves you so much that your life is worth his attention. So what's keeping us from him? That's what's going on here in Lamentations chapter 2 as we consider God's wrath. His wrath is ultimately redemptive. And that's what unfolds here from verses 11 to 22. See this passage? See what's going on here? By verse 11, 
It's not just Lady Zion who is in tears and broken. By verse 11, the poet has become so emotionally invested and affected by what's happened, the poet can't stop crying. The poet can't stop weeping. The poet is sick to his stomach. And especially for the children, because children pay for poor parenting. Verse 12, they cry to their mothers, where's the bread and the wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. And in verse 13, the poet wants to comfort, but isn't sure how. What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Did you note the shift? In chapter 1, this impoverished widow has now become a wounded daughter. And verse 13 concludes with, who can heal you? Who can heal? And, and the answer is, no one but God. Only God can restore. The religious leaders can't, verse 14. The gawkers can't, verse 15, all who pass along the way hiss and wag their heads. Verse 16, the enemies won't. Verse 17 says, the Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Back to Deuteronomy 28. So repent. Turn to the Lord. Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out. Do you see the poet saying, Lady Zion, repent. Come on. Turn to God. Turn to God. And she begins to do that. She does. She begins to do that. that because you see, the, the poet has spoken from verse 1 all the way to verse 19. And now, in verses 20, 21, and 22, Lady Zion speaks. Speaks words of repentance. She begins to repent. Verses 20 through 22 concludes with godly sorrow as Jerusalem Laments. Listen to me, church family. There is a better way to live than the way we were born. There's a better way to live than the way we were born. This broken city protests. God, I don't like this. This is too hard. This broken city protests offers a plea, but I know I'm responsible for this. And then offers this petition, please help. And, 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 and at the conclusion of verse 22, this is the last time Lady Zion speaks in the entire book. So there's no more excuses, no more blaming. She's beginning to own it. She's beginning to own it. And now she needs an advocate. Now she needs a comforter. Now she needs someone who will come alongside and feel with her and speak for her and help her heal. And that's basically what the poet does in chapters 3 and 4 and 5.
Let's take it to today. You know, there's no question that the anonymous victim in this Stanford University affair, there's no question that this anonymous victim needs ministry. She needs support. She needs healing. She needs an advocate. She does. She does. And what of Mr. Turner? What if, what if he were to come out of this crime? Broken and repentant. Realizing how unmanageable his life has become. And what if he seeks help? Who will be there? Uh, the media says that after his jail time, he's planning on going back to Ohio. There are churches there. Can a church help him in his brokenness? Can they be praying for his brokenness right now? I mean, he's going to need a church family to be used by God to repair his ruined life. And some people say, say well, you know, yeah, but his repentance is highly unlikely. Oh, really? Why is that? You're here. I'm here. Are there not broken people here? I mean, are we, are we in the mercy business or not? See, here's my political beef. My political beef is that when the courts, when the courts whose mission is justice, when they get in the mercy business, we're in trouble. And the church whose mission is mercy gets into the justice business, we're even worse off. Because God has ordained both. One to be the agent and servant administering justice. This church family, Windsor Road Christian Church. We're about, we're about grace. Because I couldn't be up here if it weren't for grace. I wouldn't have a message to preach. I wouldn't have a life if it weren't for the grace and mercy of God. See, the gospel... Paul says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, but I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. <laughs> So we have a word for broken people who have been wounded by the wrath of God and who want healing and repentance. See, it's one thing to sit around and evaluate among ourselves whether we think God's wrath is justified and then, you know, judge the judge. But it's another thing to sit with those who have been ruined by their sin and comfort them and reassure them that in Christ, by grace, through faith, they are not damaged goods. And I'll tell you, someone's here today, and maybe they were in first service, or maybe they're here, who feels that they're damaged goods. And Paul says, if anyone is in Christ... It's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. So, 
leadership questions. How are we going to come alongside those wounded by God's wrath and be a part of their healing? Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, did you get that? Anyone caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this is yet another reason why we gather on Friday nights at Celebrate Recovering. Because this is step 12. Having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. King David, after his disastrous failure concerning Bathsheba, put it this way in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. So David is reminding us that what qualifies us to teach in personal ministry context of daily life. What qualifies us is the grace that we have received in our moments of need. So my story of God having rescued me by his love and and wounded me with his wrath, and healed me with his spirit of comfort and love, my story God wants to use in the lives of others. And as I teach others, being vulnerable, willing to share my story, I am actually a tool of transforming grace. And I'm not teaching the person a, a textbook, workbook about grace, I'm just sharing my experience of grace. And people are learning not because I've necessarily opened up a workbook. That's a good kind of learning. But oh, there's another learning because I've opened up the curriculum of my heart to show God's grace in action. So how are you stewarding your story of grace? Have you thought about how to tell your story in a way that puts God and His grace at center stage? Have you looked around and considered Who's living with or near you who could benefit from your story of grace so that they could heal? And having healed, they share the story of grace with someone else who heals and then shares and on and on and on. Your willingness to talk honestly and vulnerable about how you were and continue to be a person in need of God's rescue. What I'm trying to tell you in this big idea is simply this. God's wrath is for a moment, but His grace is for a lifetime. We may cry all night, but joy always, always comes in the morning. Amen? Here's what we're going to do now. We're going to, um, we're going to recite as a congregation a liturgy of lament based on Psalm 51. And Psalm 30, verse 5. And uh, after we do that as a congregation, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to remember in communion that God punished my sin. He punished His Son for my sin. That Jesus was treated like I should have been treated. 
And he did this out of his mercy and grace. Hmm. So that I would have a story that magnifies him and transforms others. So let's read together here Psalm 51. Here we go. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. Against you, you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge us with hyssop and we shall be clean. Wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out all our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Then we will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. For your wrath is but for a moment, and your favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry the night, but joy comes in the morning. 